This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit with your host, Pat McMahon. Oh, you're going to love this one. Uh, Not to the exclusion of the last one or next week's because we know that's going to be terrific. But I know that you're going to really love this one because at the end of this hour, I will wager, unless it's against your moral standards, I will wager that you will say to someone close to you, I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that. Unless, of course, you are already a member of the Falun Dafa or Falun Gong. Are you familiar with those words? Well, you will be because that's what the hour is about. And if you think that you know about this faith, this philosophy, this movement that began in China a very short time ago, uh, then maybe you don't know as much as you think you do. Nick Janicki, we thank you so much for being with us on The God Show, particularly to begin with the definition of the two titles for the religion, or do you not call it a religion? Uh, it, it is not a religion, though some, some assume it is. Yes, thank you. What do you call it? Uh, so Falun Dafa, also known as Falun Gong, is a spiritual uh, movement that came out of China in 1992. Uh, so a rough translation of Falun Dafa is Fa is the way or the law, and Lun is wheel. Dafa is the great way. So rough translation is the great way of the law wheel. And so Falun Gong is a term that came out of China. Uh, in, in China in the 80s, Qigong was very popular. So you've heard of Qigong and Tai Chi. I have, but perhaps someone in Lucerne listening right now yes. doesn't have any <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Right. So uh, in the 80s, Qigong became very, very popular in China. And you and actually what have is that? hundreds of Qigong masters coming out and teaching uh, energy uh, practice. So you would actually um, cultivate qi or energy in order to help with uh, healing, sickness, things like that. Uh, when Falun Gong came out in 1992, the founder taught um, basically three principles. And he said these principles were the cosmic characteristic or spirit of the universe. Uh, and that is called the Fa. Uh, in Taoism, you would call it the Tao, and Jesus called it the Way. And so he said this cosmic characteristic can be summarized in three principles. Uh, in Chinese, it's Jen, Shan, Ren, uh, translated truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. And so those are the myriad of the things that as a practitioner we actually cultivate. So the idea is to cultivate our heart nature, our xingxing in Chinese, uh, or moral character to those characteristics. There are people right now uh, who know that the headquarters for the God Show is now and has been for 16 or 17 years, Phoenix, Arizona. And they may be saying right now also, well, I believe that all of those arenas of Asian beliefs and philosophies uh, have some value, but why on earth are you talking about it on The God Show? Well, listen, let me tell you that here in Phoenix, Arizona, there is an organization that you've met many times here, various representatives of various faiths that make up the 20-plus faiths of the Arizona interfaith movement, one of which is, yes, in Phoenix, Arizona, Falun Dafa, 
Falun Gong. And by the way, the difference in those two words, is it a matter of dialect? It's not a matter of dialect. It's just, uh, so Falun Dof actually had a much longer name. So its true name is the, um, you know, Falun Dof is more in terms of the true name. And then Falun Gong is just to go al- along with the uh, Qigong terminology. So anything with a feudalistic ingredient in the 1980s was heavily persecuted. So if you had religious overtones, you tend to, tended to be persecuted. So a lot of people would just rename uh, things like the cultivation way of Buddha Dharma, ninefold internal alchemy. They just rename these things as such and such gong. And so Falun Gong is just part of that. So uh, Falun Gong, yeah. And, and what is it that a fellow named Janiki uh, <laughs> finds as attractive as it clearly you do uh, with the philosophy and practice of Falun Dafa? Uh, that is a very big question. So a lot of people ask me if I'm half Chinese or quarter Chinese, and I said, nope, all, all pierogies here, all Polish. Uh, so, um, you know, Falun Gong... <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking, as, as people are looking at the 100 million members of Falun Dafa and the Polish wing, the pierogi wing, <laughs> the pierogi is, wing. is headed That's at right. least here in Phoenix by Nick Janicki. But tell me, t- tell me about your background spiritually, religiously, uh, as, as a young Polish person growing up where? I uh, grew up actually in the United Kingdom. So moved to England when I was nine years old for my father's job. He worked for Firestone Industrial Products. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved over there when I was nine years old. And so I have a Methodist background. Uh, I have several uh, Methodist um, uh, ministers in our family. Uh, so, you know, went to church. Uh, and then in college, I started to get into meditation and Qigong. And for me, it was very interesting. Is Meditation brought me into this place of tranquility. And the way I would describe it now, it was the abilities to resonate with that cosmic characteristic, which is the Fa, the Tao, or the Way. And it was a feeling, not an intellectual understanding of God, and reconnecting with that feeling. It sounds like Buddhism to me. Yeah, absolutely. So the way I understand this is that these characteristics, um, you know, it's something that if you ask, this is why I love interfaith, right? So if you ask people that practice uh, Buddhism or Christianity, or, um, you know, Baha'i or Sikh faith, they all have similar stories and similar ideologies. And that's the beauty of it. And so this cosmic characteristic doesn't belong to a religious group. It's something that resonates with everyone. And so I discovered this in uh, university when I started meditating, Um, tried many, many different types of of Qigong. And then um, my last year of university, which was uh, right around... 2001 or so, uh, discovered Falun Gong. And I started reading about these, these principles. And Falun Gong described very deeply the um, you know, karma that Buddhism talks about, the virtue or duh, and sort of that interchange on how the white substance, virtue, and the black substance, karma, essentially control everything that happens in your life. And it really cleared up a lot of the, uh, not misunderstandings, but a lot of the gaps I had with some of my previous uh, beliefs. With listeners right now saying, I understood some of the things that he said, but if they have no contact uh, and uh, no early understanding 
of uh, any of the Asian philosophies, any of the Asian practices, uh, is it difficult for them to absorb the teachings of Falun Gong? That's a great question. So Falun Gong first came out in 1992, and the uh, founder at the time, Mr. Li Hongzhu, came out and... Now, the founder, right now, you see, you ran past that very rapidly. Yes. And, and I want to make sure that if people are making notes... Sure, sure, sure. ...that they can get all of these essentials. The founder's name... Mr. Li Hongji, or Mr. Li Hongzhu, just depending how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. um, but he basically came out in the public in 1992... And he would Who actually give, uh, so basically Falun Dafa, as he puts it, is something that came from prehistory. Uh, and so this was passed down to one chosen master, or excuse me, from one, to one disciple from a master over the course of history. So this was something that uh, is, has prehistoric origins. And uh, it was reintroduced, we say, in this time period uh, in 1992. Before uh, that, was it called something else? Was it, part, was it a part of Taoism? Was it a part of Confucianism? Uh, it has its own independent system. So what we talk about um, so is, is basically system. So Falun Gong, unlike a lot of other Qigongs, doesn't cultivate qi. We cultivate a Falun, or law wheel, in the lower uh, abdomen, which in Qigong circles is called the Dantian, or uh, that's where your energy central is. And so in, to give a little bit of uh, background, so in most Qigongs, what you're doing is you're cultivating qi in order to rid your body of pathogenic qi, which is the root cause of illness. And qi is energy. Qi is a, is a type of energy that's intrinsic in all things. It's in uh, the microscopic particles of, of plants. It's in and around everything. The fundamental purpose of Qigong is to replace uh, pathogenic qi with clean qi. Uh, and that is actually a process in Falun Gong that you can do very, very quickly. Uh, and you, we do that with four standing Qigong exercises and a seated meditation. So a lot of people will uh, get sensitive. They'll start feeling their own energy field, which is maybe even a new concept for people, is, is an energy field. But science is now showing that you know, these are things that do exist, uh, energy centers in the body, things like that. Um, but the fundamental goal is to uh, replace the body with higher energy matter essentially. And so uh, that's what the exercises are for. It's basically to replace uh, one acupuncture, excuse me, all the acupuncture points with one acupuncture points, or conversely, no acupuncture points, if that makes sense. Kind of. Yes. But then again, I haven't studied Falun Gong, and you have. Yes, yes. How long did it take you to um, achieve the level, if there is in fact a level, uh, of study that you uh, currently so have? The, all, all students are practitioners. So there's no, there's no levels per se. So no matter where you begin the practice, um, you're always a student. Because this is something that when it was passed down in China, uh, the founder would give nine-day lecture seminars um, and basically just, just lecture for nine days. Um, and so it's really up to the individual, and that's why there's no worship, there's no temples, there's no money exchange. There's only two rules, essentially, in spreading Falun Gong. One is that you cannot charge a fee, you cannot collect money, and you cannot use your own ideologies or understandings to explain the practice of Falun Dafa. No wonder, without a collection basket, that you actually were able to attract 100 million people in China. That alone would make it an enormously successful religion. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, so in China, when this started gaining popularity, you would have tens of thousands of people every single day practicing uh, meditation in the parks. With so the five exercises. With the five exercises. So everyone would get up around 5 a.m. If you went to China in the late 90s, it was literally a meditation heaven. You would have tens of thousands of people uh, in parks throughout the entire country. Um, and so to kind of get back to your original question is, um, for me, once I uh, read the main book. So the, the main book is called Juan Falun, which is rotating the law wheel. And um, Is that the equivalent of your Bible? I would, I would call it such, yes. And there's lots of supplementary articles and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it's an accumulation of those nine-day lecture seminars. And so uh, I read that. And for me, it just cleared up a lot of questions I had um, and just really allowed me to understand things in a different light. Is it nine days and continuing study in order to develop perfection in the practice of these exercises? Because if there are only five, I think even someone like me might be able to, <laughs> to create some level yes. of quality with my five exercises. That's right. Well, the exercises are very simple. So there's two primary aspects to uh, Falun Gong. One is the exercises, which I could, you know, we have free classes uh, basically throughout the world, mm -hmm. except in China where it's banned. Um, and they're very easy to learn. So these are exercises that are very easy to learn. And then there's a seated meditation. And so that's one part is doing the exercises. But the true practice is about cultivating your mind or heart nature to this universal characteristic. Is the seated meditation that which I have seen and likened to lotus position in, in yoga? Absolutely. With yep. the crossed legs. You got it. You got it. So it's what we call full lotus. So half lotus is one leg on top of the thigh, and then full lotus is folding the other leg on top of that leg, and that's called full lotus position. Actually, for me, it is called in English a hernia. <laughs> uh, uh, when when uh, you're talking about, though, the exercises as I've seen them practiced uh, online, they're really beautiful. Yes. Uh, they're, they're really lovely, poetic, uh, 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 ballet-like movements, but I liken them to Tai Chi. Sure, sure. And you were talking about Chi being a, a, a part of the goal, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, to, uh, to straighten one's energy out. Uh, how is it different? Well, this is a very in-depth question. So uh, it took the founder nine days <laughs> and two hours at a time to, to kind of talk through some of these things. But in a general sense... Uh, give me the Reader's Digest. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. So, uh, so chi is something you can work through very quickly. Uh, so typically, if I'm feeling like uh, a virus or some bacteria is, is trying to take over my body, the idea is that being ill is essentially an abnormal state. And our body has the ability to, to heal itself if given the proper environment. And so when I am able to do my Qigong exercises, I can feel the immunity pick up. I can feel the strong energy field, this presence, and everything is just cleared up. So heal, uh, healing and uh, fitness isn't really the goal, the fundamental goal of Falun Gong, or that may be the goal of a lot of different Qigongs and Tai Chis. It sort of is in this box of healing and fitness. 
uh, Falun Gong, the ultimate purpose, again, is to basically open up all the energy channels simultaneously. And I can, I can get out there a little bit. So the ultimate goal is to convert your body into a high energy matter. And so um, I'll give you a little a story, not specific to Falun Gong, but to illustrate a point. Please. There was a farmer in the 80s named David Hudson. And uh, I call him a farmer, but he had uh, a series of gold mines. And he discovered a substance that was this white powder inside of the gold mines. And it, and it confused him. He started to do spectral analysis on this white powder. And he found that it was AU, which is gold. However, it wasn't forming a metallic bond. Mm-hmm. So he thought this was very strange. So David Hudson is here in Phoenix. He's spent the last 30 years or so researching the substance, which he calls ORM, or Orbity Rearranged Monatomic Elements, ORMIS. Um, once he started researching this, he found that uh, this substance was likened to manna in the Bible. Um, mm. It was likened to shrewbread, if you look at Egyptian culture, mm-hmm. things like that. And so uh, w- when, when you go and talk about Taoism, Taoists used to talk about um, forming an energy cluster in the Don, which is your lower abdomen. And this energy cluster is something that would convert your body into high energy matter. And that's when you start getting into things that to us sound like miracles, which would be uh, levitation properties. So you're able to get the body into a levitation property. Jesus talked about walking on water, right? Uh, So in Taoism, they just talk about that as the opening of the heavenly circuit. So again, these are all things that you'll you'll see stories of in every single, um, every sage, every enlightened being, um, you know, Jesus, Buddha, Shakyamuni, Lao Tzu, they all talked about these similar things. Um, and in the East, they just get into a little more detail of the conversion and how these things open up, how these channels work. Do the practitioners at some level of understanding of Falun Gong, um, are they able to practice levitation? Um, I would say that it's not impossible for tens of thousands of people to be at the state where they could levitate. But there's a, um, what Li Hongzhu says is there's a state in society, which is we, we're not allowed to display supernormal abilities. It's a realm of delusion for a reason. And so for those that perhaps have reached the state where their body has been open to that extent, that ability maybe is locked up. Because um, if everyone were flying around like Superman, it'd be a very different world, <laughs> right? So Your spiritual leader, uh, was relatively new on the scene, at least in, in comparison with most, including your family's Methodism and John Wellesley. That's right. Uh, but uh, tell me about him. I'm, I'm interested in the origin of Falun Gong as created, at that origin created by, uh, I, I want to make sure that I pronounce his name correctly, Li Hongji? Yes. Uh, so uh, Li Hongzhu was born in uh, Guangzhou province, Guangzhou, and um, from a very early age he had masters uh, as part of his biography that would come to him and teach him some of these Qigong things. Um, and then um, basically when he was in his um, middle years he started understanding and remembering essentially these principles, right? Jin Shanren, truthfulness, compassion, forbearance. And um, so there's poems that you can go online and read from even the late uh, 80s that were written that were all about um, cultivating the Tao, cultivating the way, all these things. And he waited, um, it seems like, almost 10 years from his own process of reawakening 
to, to teach this to the public. Are you a derivative, you being Falun Gong? Is that a derivative of Buddhism? Would Buddhists find a benevolent companionship and relationship with Falun Gong, or do they resent you? That's an interesting question. I would hope, I would hope there would be benevolence. Uh, so what happens with many things, and I think this is the same with many interfaith groups. So being part of interfaith, I've realized that many groups uh, have an ideological difference on how they, they see these principles. And so we have a tendency to fight with each other. So the purpose of interfaith is to uh, bridge that gap with compassion. So what a great word, compassion. So it's one of the three principles. Uh, so my gut would say, of course, but um, you know, Falun Gong isn't, isn't Buddhism, it's not Taoism. Does it share similar principles? Of course it does, as does Christianity, as does Sikhism, as does Baha'i. But those are religions, and you say you aren't one. Correct, correct. Um, yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> we, we say we're not a religion because we, we don't engage in, in worship. Uh, we don't engage, we don't have any physical locations. It's all about cultivating our, our own heart. And, and our you own don't nature. have collection baskets. That's right, that's right. I want to continue to emphasize yeah. that, which may attract even more people listening right now. That's right. Because there are a lot of people who simply cynically have said, I'm fed up with religion. I believe in God. It'll be my personal relationship with him. I don't need the departmentalism that goes on. Well, Pat, I mean, what, what is your thought on, um, you know, what's happening now with, say, the, the Catholic Church? Was Jesus teaching uh, Catholicism, or was that something that came far after? Well, you're talking, of course, to somebody who comes from a long line of Irish Catholics, and, and I will tell you that there are elements of the Roman Catholic bureaucracy and the structure of the Church uh, that not only I disagree with, but I find uh, mortally embarrassing. Uh, but no matter what I think, the key here is, is the foundation of Falun Gong really different than other organizational religions? Uh, define foundation for me. That on which it is all built and based. So, the foundation of a building, the foundation of a concept, so it's really about integration for me. So um, this is the, the beauty of Falun Dafa, is that your level of understanding, your level of practicing is all dependent on you yourself. So there's no outside precepts or regulations or uh, anything you, you must do. It's all, it's all up to your own individual understanding. Including the way I practice <clears throat> the exercises? Well, the exercises would be something that you would try to match as closely as possible. Of so course. there is a certain degree, then, of, of leadership and direction. Yes, yes. And so the idea behind the exercises, uh, I'm going to get into kind of deeper physics, <laughs> if you will, here. But the understanding is that um, we're talking about things that are interdimensional. So now if you've heard of, um, echo, is it, what's the uh, place in uh, Switzerland that's doing the uh, particle acceleration research? It's... Uh, a place in Switzerland, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> so what they're discovering now is with these supercomputers, they're actually able to 
and they, they're using these words. These aren't words I'm using. They're able to go into different dimensions, calculate things not based on a binary of ones and zeros, and mm -hmm. come back with an answer because they've researched all answers in different dimensions. So when you talk about dimensions, uh, physicists, scientists now know that there are different dimensions. So to understand uh, fundamentally Qigong, and I think even um, some of these higher principles, you really do have to understand you know, the definition of a dimension. And so the way uh, Li Hong Zhu defines a dimension is that a dimension is something that is in between two planes. So an example would be, uh, right now we are in the realm of molecules. We're made of molecules. These microphones are made of molecules. Everything is molecular. Even the instruments we use to look at smaller things are molecules. Uh, once you go down a dimension to atoms, protons, quarks, neutrinos, you get into that quantum realm, These are there's particles. We've never studied the plane of atoms. We've never studied the plane of quarks. We're only able to study a single point. And so uh, my understanding from, I'm paraphrasing, uh, of what the founder has said in terms of dimensions is a dimension is essentially the space in between those two points on a plane. So if you look at the plane of atoms and the plane of molecules, those are, we, we, we exist in between those two planes. Uh, and then also the, the next largest particles we can see are planets, which is if you looked at the plane of planets, it would be another dimensional segment. Um, so this is kind of fringe from a scientific perspective. But the irony is um, other beings like Buddha Shakyamuni, as an example, talked about these sorts of things where he said, in one grain of sand is an entire world. And within that world is a world within a world within a world within a world. And there's countless beings at every level. So Falun Gong, what we're doing with the exercises is you're actually cultivating an energy system in another dimension. It's basically a technology that just exists in a smaller dimension. So when you do the exercises, you're actually reinforcing the mechanisms that we can't see, but after a while, if you do the exercises, you'll notice your hands will sort of just glide in that position without you having to use much force or muscles. Um, and some of the exercises are relatively complicated. So you're actually creating this, this energetic system. I know that's, that's Stephen, out there, but... You think that Stephen Hawking would have uh, enjoyed the company of your, uh, your founder and leader? I, I would uh, say absolutely yes. Um, so these are, these are the things where the, the scientists, the greatest scientists tend to dabble in spirituality either knowingly or unknowingly. And that's what's very fascinating. You have guys like Einstein who, you know, by the end of his life, he realized, oh wow, this is extraordinary. This is intelligent design. However, the leaders of nations at least one nation, they don't seem to feel the same level of affection for Falun Gong uh, that the leaders of the world of science and philosophy do. You mentioned that uh, your, uh, your faith, your philosophy, your movement is banned in China. That's right, yes. A billion and a half people are not allowed to practice Falun Gong, and yet it was founded there. That's correct, absolutely. And it was very popular there, as I said. So this grew in 1992 up to 1998 to 70 million people practicing in China. Grew very, very quickly. Uh, China did its own research, the, the, the government, and they discovered that 70% um, of the people that practiced had illnesses that would go away. 
another percentage had illnesses greatly reduced. And they started actually promoting Falun Gong nationwide on a very, very large scale. Um, there were several uh, Qigong expos that were held, um, and it was very widely supported initially. Um, <clears throat> what happened is ideologically, uh, when Mao took over in the 1940s, Mao, as you know, went through a campaign of uh, destroying traditional culture, which was the Cultural Revolution uh, that many people have read about. Obviously, the Tiananmen Square Massacre were students in uh, 1989 that were killed. Um, but what you had is a dismantling of uh, traditional culture, and uh, the communist government is a very strict atheist regime. So Falun Gong emerged, and as you can imagine, it grew very quickly to 70 million people. You now had people that were getting healthier. You had people that had control of their own thought. Uh, you had people that were reconnecting to a divine state. And um, they started basically breaking up groups. And in um, 1999, um, they, 1998, late 1998, they started arresting people for organizing these Falun Gong meditation groups. Were you a threat primarily because of your numbers? I would say absolutely yes, because of the numbers and the ideology. So uh, persecution is not new, unfortunately, in any communist country. Um, you know, you had Lenin, you have uh, Vietnam, North Korea. Uh, Mao did it very well. And they, you know, historians will say communism has been responsible for 100 million deaths in the last 70 years. Um, so, um, you know, in the 60s, uh, the intellectuals were targeted in China. So unfortunately, Falun Gong is just another group that was targeted. Um, and what happened is in 1999, 10,000 Falun Gong practitioners of their own volition uh, showed up in Zhongnanghai, which is basically the Washington, D.C. of China. And they weren't necessarily protesting. They didn't have any signs. They just, they just stood in the streets. Uh, the premier at the time came out and asked, you know, what are all you people doing? Who are you people? And they said, we're Falun Gong practitioners. Um, we just want to be uh, free to practice our faith and, you know, continue to practice these group meditations. Uh, the premier at the time said, okay, no problem. Everyone went home uh, for basically three, four months. No word from the government. All the Falun Gong practitioners in China, and I know several people here in Arizona that actually have asylum, so they remember these days in, in the late... Uh, 1992, 1993, or excuse me, uh, 1999, when the persecution began. And there were six months of silence. In 1999, they came out with the 610 office. The 610 office's uh, purpose was to defame, demoralize, and destroy Falun Gong practitioners. This is the written statement. And they basically created a Gestapo-like organization outside of the scope of um, most of their governmental laws. Um, and it was banned in 1999. Um, and I think the 10,000 people coming to Zhongnanghai was a big part of that. It scared them. So that was without any organization. You have 70, at that time, probably closer to 100 million people practicing this. You can imagine in a communist country, that's a huge, huge ideology. But the Catholic Church and Judaism uh, and Baha'i, uh, so many faiths have been persecuted to a degree and then there was eventually in China and Russia uh, and, and other uh, totalitarian countries. 
usually some kind of balance because the religions just didn't go away. And people found that uh, they were not going to stop practicing in some form their chosen faith, right. whether it was underground or in churches, mosques, and synagogues. And so usually there was some kind of an understanding that eventually was uh, developed between the government and the churches. Why was Falun Gong singled out, regardless of your numbers? Um, so my understanding is, well, we'll have to go back to about 2000, 2001. So uh, one of the key issues that was singled out was the ideological threat. Um, but once the ban was made, uh, you, you essentially had the Chinese government rounding up people, putting them in labor camps, things like that. And unfortunately, they started to profit off of the Falun Gong. And you, might ask, way? you might ask how or why. China, China, <laughs> China doesn't have a um, background of um, donating organs. Uh, culturally, they don't donate organs. So in the early 2000s, there were just a handful of organ transplant hospitals. Now there's well over 350 in China. And in um, 2006, the first report came, on, came out with David Matus and David Kilgore. Um, and David Kilgore is uh, the former VP of Asia Pacific out of um, Canada, and David Matus is a human rights attorney. And they came out with this report that basically showed um, upwards of 50 to 60,000 organs have been involuntarily taken from Falun Gong practitioners as part of organ harvesting. So this has created a, essentially a government industry is what's happened. And um, the new report came out in um, 2016 that showed it's closer in number to upwards of 40,000 a year of these transplants. Which Chinese leadership denies? Not anymore, actually. They, they denied this uh, uh, for a good 10, 12 years. And two years ago, um, at, actually at the Vatican, they said that, yes, this has been going on, but now as of 2015, it has stopped, which all of our sources say it, it actually hasn't stopped. So for 15 years, they basically said this isn't happening. And they said, oh, it is happening, but we're now going to stop. Were they harvesting organs out of other elements of downgraded society, like the prisoners, for example? Well, that's exactly right. It's from the prisoner population. But people who were not Falun Gong? Uh, a, a small percentage, a small percentage. So if you look at the organ harvesting numbers, the correlation between Falun Gong being banned and organ transplant surgery booming is undeniable. Um, it's, it's just actually mind-boggling. How is Falun Gong uh, practiced now in mainland China uh, in spite of the ban? Absolutely. So most people just have to do it in private. Um, so we have is a, it underground? It, I would say absolutely it's underground. So in rural areas, um, my, some sources in China are basically saying that they can hear the exercise music again in rural areas, uh, which means people are coming out again and practicing. Um, so you may have heard of what, the reason the international community you asked before has sort of turned a blind eye to this is in 2001, there was an incidence of self-immolation. And this was at um, Tiananmen Square. And it was a, a supposed Falun Gong practitioner who, by the way, was covered in you know nine layers of clothing and had a, a wig on 
which is odd <laughs> to begin with. But that uh, video went around That video the world. went viral. It was copied by every single news network in, in the world for days and days and days. And it was someone catching themselves on fire, saying something about Falun Gong, by the way, doing the very basic hand movements incorrectly, saying things that didn't make sense if you were a Falun Gong practitioner. Um, and it was staged. It was very clearly staged. Um, so now, if you look back at the video, there's been reconstructive uh, things happening. Um, and it's, it's clearly something that, I mean, it sounds unbelievable, but was absolutely staged by the communist government to, to distract and demoralize Falun Gong, demonize Falun Gong, and make it very, very easy for the international community to turn a blind eye. Was it successful? Oh, it was absolutely successful in, in their mission to... Um, you know, it, it's very interesting. We, we talk to U.S. politicians now, and they say that was basically the turning point for the international community to stop paying attention to Falun Gong, was that, was that incident. Here's another reason that I've heard, and that is the people who have done very little research and very little study just see on the surface uh, description A, B, C, D, and E, and it looks like a cult. Right. And all you have to do is to say cult in not just this country, but virtually anywhere. And the vast majority of people consider that a negative and something to turn away from. That's right. That's also one of the problems you've had. Oh, absolutely. Um, but this is what you do when you try to persecute a people, is you demonize them. I mean, the same things happened during the, the Holocaust, um, what happened in Rwanda. I mean, it's, it's a tactic that you use words... To, to demonize a group that is undergoing a persecution. So I think the, the same thing happened to Falun Gong, unfortunately, in China. Leadership in China still feel exactly the same way? Are they passionately opposed to you? You know, <clears throat> that is a, a very deep question. So Jiang Zemin was the orchestrator of the 610 office. Uh, now, what we can tell is China is a very interesting country. <laughs> it's not a democracy. It's not a republic. So you have a country where um, the ex-premier essentially still holds some control over the military. So even if the new premier, um, she would, let's say, w wanted to stop this, you could still be, have inside forces that would control it. So we don't know the position of the current administration in China. Essentially, however, China has a history of not liking Falun Gong, right? Who loves you? <laughs> Who loves us? Yes. Who, um, who is it that not only doesn't practice that kind of persecution, right. but welcomes you with open arms? Pretty much the whole rest of the world. Um, absolutely. So the interesting thing is um, uh, I'm part of a show called Xinyan Performing Arts. I'm so glad you brought <clears> that up because that is the graphic presentation that whether people know that it's associated with Falun Gong or not, Everybody recognizes it because of the remarkable dancing and acrobatics yes. and uh, the presentation of uh, an evening of entertainment. Absolutely. Well, Xinyin, uh, so his, his mission is to revive the traditional culture of China, the 5,000 years that were essentially lost since the, the 1940s after the Cultural Revolution. And... Um, so to answer this question, I'll give you an example. So Xinyin was going to um, a province in Canada, and the Chinese government sent a letter to every single member of parliament in, in, that, in that district. And the, the idea was to dissuade them from going and seeing Xinyin because it had an association with Falun Gong. 
the irony is every single person that got the letter went and saw Shenyun, and they said we could probably house uh, you know a session of parliament here, uh, and they all, and they all and they all loved it. Now come on, tell me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Did did they get complimentary tickets? Did they get complimentary and valet parking? Uh, I don't know about valet parking, but uh. <laughs> but Shenyun uh, is a phenomenon theatrically because it comes back seemingly every year. Uh, apparently, it's every couple of years. But in the valley, uh, in the Phoenix area, you regularly not only perform here. But unlike the touring Broadway shows, the biggest shows in the world usually wind up on first-run tours. They will go to Gamage. That's that's, right. that's who normally gets three thousand seats. You can understand why that would be attractive. Later productions go to Phoenix Theater, Arizona Theater Company, and a number of other places. However, Shen Yun is not satisfied just coming in every couple of years. And going to a location, doing a few performances, and then going someplace else. You always perform in two different locations of the valley, and that has to to be because of demand. Oh, absolutely. So uh, Shunyan came to Arizona first time in 2008. So this will actually be our 11th year. So since 2012, uh, Shunyan is becoming year after year after year. Uh, in 2012, we were at the Gamage Theater. To your point, uh, and since then, we're now up to, that was 10,000 tickets in 2012, and we sold out. There wasn't a seat in the house. We had a line of people standing out the door. We actually would call people that were uh, five minutes late and see if they wanted to give their tickets to these people that were standing in line. And a lot of them were sick. They had tribulations. They couldn't make the show. Uh, so it was, it was just a phenomenal success. Um, and since then, we're now up to about 22,000 tickets a year in the Valley. Amazing. It's, it's extraordinary. How, how many... Performances. Just to put that into perspective, 22,000 people over how many performances just in central Arizona? That's not even including southern Arizona with Tucson. That's right. right. Um, so that is, so the Gamage Theater is roughly 13, 1,400 seats, mm -hmm. and Mesa Theater is similar. Mm -hmm. So this week we're doing eight shows in the Orpheum Theater in Phoenix. Which and is about 1,300. About 1,300 yeah. or so, and uh, then four shows at Mesa Theater as well. Uh, and the next year, we'll likely double the shows at Mesa. And for people listening to us in upstate New York, by the way, I know you're probably familiar with Shen Young because that's where the group comes from originally. That's where your headquarters is that's theatrically right. for this organization. You got it. And that's where you rehearse. That's right. Uh, but if you happen to be listening anywhere in the vicinity of Schenectady, uh, just know that when this show appears in a place far removed from you ge geographically and certainly far removed from China, where it all began, uh, it sells out here. And, and it continues to sell out every time you come to town. I should also acknowledge the fact that you are a part of that organization, right? We are the local presenter. What does that mean? Like so, local producers, you're the one who brings the show in? That's right, that's right. So uh, we help do all the marketing for Shenyan. We book their, their theater, the, the hotel contracts, that kind of thing. Who pays for that enormous amount of advertising? The first time I ever saw the, the show on television, uh, and I thought, wow, they're everywhere. Uh, newspapers and, and uh, 
direct uh, mail advertising, and all of these things. And I've been in this business long enough to know that's an expensive property. <laughs> and you continue to do it right. long in advance, far in advance of the actual performances themselves. Whose money is that? Yes. So uh, basically all the seed money is uh, basically donated uh, by the local uh, presenter team. And then once that money is recovered, it's usually given back, and we just kind of use it for the next year. So that's all part of the, uh, the local presenter's role. Why would I delve into the principles of Falun Gong as opposed to any other Asian faith, if you will? Sure. I think the, the key differentiator is the... The fact that there's no there's no limit to what you can learn. Uh, what I've found, so I've been practicing Falun Gong for twenty, almost twenty years. Uh, so I was forty last year, and for me, it's it it's something that is a deeply connecting thing to my actual heart nature. So when I read the book, it's not just about an intellectual understanding. I actually feel this compassionate benevolence basically coming from it. Are you a better human being? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's something I work on every day and every minute of the day. Um, and that's what it's giving me is a ability to continue to improve my own xing xing, moral character or heart nature. And I think that's the key that's, that's missing a lot now. Is there's a lot of people doing qigong and exercises and things like this. People that call themselves um, you know, Christian or Buddhist. But do they actually cultivate that cosmic characteristics? Are they actually making progress? Um, Are you a better human being now than you were as a Methodist? I would say yes, because l through chronological linear time, I've improved. So anything... Well, not everybody does. <laughs> well, that's a good point. But for me personally, yes. Um, and so much like Buddhism, uh, we talk about uh, attachments, right? And, um, and so as a, I'm a business owner as well. So I would say... I've, I've let go of things and I've become better in certain regards, but there's also some things that I'm still working on or actually have gotten worse in as I've progressed. But overall, I'm a better human being now than, say, 20 years ago or, or 10 years ago. Even. Are you a more honest human being as a businessman? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the principles that you would say would be applicable uh, to the refinements of your life as a practitioner of Falun Gong, is something as fundamental as basic honesty? Basic honesty is a good thing. I think well, we truth, all can agree with that. Truth, <laughs> compassion, and, and forbearance. Forbearance, yeah. Those are the three prime principles, right? That's right, yes. Are you healthier now? Uh, absolutely. Uh, my health is fairly impeccable. Um, well, here's the thing. I started very early. So when I was in my 20s, I really had no health problems, and I've never gained any health problems. Um, now I'm 40. I don't, I don't take any medic medication. I don't have any aches and pains. Um, if, As I said, if I feel something coming on, I'm actually able to usually get rid of it within a day or two just by doing the exercises. Um, so healthiness is something I've, I've had for a very, very long time. Cholesterol is good. Blood pressure is good. So I really do believe fundamentally that this is not just a Falun Gong thing, but I, my fundamental belief is that being ill is an abnormal state. And I think as humans, we have the ability in our body, genetically has the ability to, to, to rectify uh, this 
dis-ease. How many members of Falun Gong are there in the world that you know? Uh, at its apex, there were 100 million practitioners. But now? Now, uh, with the persecution, my guess would be, and this is just a wild guess, still, still high, I would still say in the 90 million plus. Do they believe essentially the same principles? Absolutely. Um, but isn't that the fun thing about the Fa, the Dao, or the Way? Is it, it's all dependent on your own understanding. And uh, one of the great things that uh, Buddha Shakyamuni said was that no Fa, or no, yeah, no Fa is definitive. Uh, essentially, the understanding being that your level of understanding is dependent upon yourself. So if there is a Fa, if the Fa exists, right, that's sort of depending on our own understanding. Um, and so that gets into into some in-depth principles. But. So if I ran into, oh, if I was visiting upstate New York, for example, and I ran into one of the performers um, and a practitioner of Falun Gong and also one of those remarkable dancers that you have, uh, and I said, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the name Nick Janicki, but I had him on the radio show for an hour. We talked about Falun Gong. And uh, he said that essentially most of you believe pretty much the same things. Do you believe in an afterlife? Would his or her answer be the same as yours? Yes. Do you believe in an afterlife? A hundred percent, yes. What kind of afterlife? So uh, we believe in uh, heavenly realms. We actually believe mm -hmm. that uh, humans in this day and age, uh, the true soul came from heaven. And we came down here to fulfill a cosmic vow, um, make good of that, and then return. Do you believe in sin? Absolutely, that would be karma. Are they the same sins that I hear uh, when the Vatican talks to me and says, stop that? <laughs> um, p potentially. I think, um, so the way we think of sin is as, as a physical manifestation of a material that's present in another dimension. And so everything good or bad comes either from virtue, which is exchanged for things you want, or karma, which is generated from things that are against that characteristic. And so those are the immutable uh, materials that represent that, that characteristic of Jin Shan Ren. This is really not fair, but then again, that's a principle of mine. Right. Uh, being not fair? Being unfair <laughs> when it comes to asking questions right. uh, that I think are interesting. So I, we don't have fair and unfair questions. We just have mine. Right. And hopefully the answers will be forthcoming at least within the next couple of minutes because I don't want to run out of time. Um, give me a story just the very first thing that occurs to you that would help me understand the impact of Falun Gong on any member of the faith that you have ever known personally? Um, so the first story that comes to mind has to be a, an ASU student who came out of China, and her mom was in and out of labor camps for the better part of a decade. Because of the persecution? Because of the persecution. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just, you hear so many stories coming out of China, and the, 
the, the, the one that gets me the most is no matter what happened to these um, mainland Chinese that practice Falun Gong, they, they continued to maintain a light, compassionate heart. And to me, there's nothing greater. I, I'm a Western. I, I'm, to your point, you know, I'm, I'm a Polish per- person practicing Falun Gong. I've never experienced persecution. But to be able to keep that compassionate heart after being tortured, after being starved, is remarkable. And I think that speaks to how powerful faith is. Um, and this young lady, she said when she was in high school, there was actually questions about Falun Gong on the tests. And if you answered the question correctly, you know, you'd get a point. If you left it blank, you wouldn't get any credit. And if you answered it wrong, they would come talk to you about Falun Gong. Um, and you know, she basically had to hide a, a huge part of who she was um, before she came to the United States. I was just thinking that as you described her and that story and your relationship with her and the fact that you're a Polish-American, decades ago, members of your family certainly understood persecution. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Have you ever been told those stories? Uh, I haven't. I haven't. Good. (laughs) When you... um, when you invite people to Shenyun, that performance, you're inviting people uh, to an evening of uh, live music. How big is the orchestra? There's 40 people in the orchestra. 40 people Absolutely. either in the pit or on the stage playing Western and Asian instruments? That's right. It ah. is a unique orchestra. So you have Western and uh, Chinese instruments over Western orchestration. So an example would be the arhu or the, uh, uh, and the pipa. And the arhu is a two-stringed violin. And it kind of replicates the sound of a human voice. So it's a very unique instrument. So you have parts in uh, Shenyin during some of the vignettes where you have this sound that sounds like a, a girl laughing or a girl screaming. Uh, and it's actually that, that instrument. It's, it's a remarkable sound. I, I heard it uh, when I attended the... Uh Chinese traditional opera in Beijing, and uh, it, uh, there's an acquired taste uh, to uh, Chinese opera. Yes. Uh, but the instrumentation was really remarkable. So you have a large orchestra, you have a large company of dancers. How many? That's right. So at any given troupe, there's 35 to 40 dancers on top of the nearly 40 people in the orchestra. So Are they is- all adherents to... Fallon, Fallon Young, Fallon Gong. Fallon Gong. After an hour of pronouncing it correctly, I have now changed everybody into an Episcopalian. Yes, but yes, uh, they they all do practice. Um, so people that join uh, the group, obviously, it's it's an open group. There's auditions going on now for members of the orchestra, um, and you know people just practice the exercises together. But what's very interesting is the feeling that comes from. Just the orchestra alone is phenomenal. Now, Shinyan has the orchestra, they have the dancers, they have an 80-foot digital backdrop, and they actually have patented technology. So you'll have a dancer jump what looks like into the screen, do some sort of animation, and then jump back. So being a ballet, I would call it a type of Chinese ballet, it's classical Chinese dance, and actually martial arts actually originate, believe it or not, from classical Chinese dance. Uh, and a lot of ballet moves and things you see in the Olympics also stem from classical Chinese dance. So it has a, this multi-thousand-year 
history. I've been told it's spectacular. It's uh, you, well, you need to you need to see the show. <laughs> <laughs> I think I see what a salesman, huh? Yeah. Uh, if I go though, uh, will I be so mesmerized by the performances that I will be then innocently taken in to the sermon that follows the performance, or is there none? Well, the, the, there isn't a sermon, I wouldn't say, but the messaging is that, you know, there's basically uh, about 20 vignettes, and the vast majority of the vignettes are going back to ancient China. They're going back two, 3,000 years. They're relating stories that people can relate to now. The Monkey King is a very popular one. Uh, there's then two um, soloists that'll sing songs. And the lyrics of the songs are simply there to remind us as humans that our origin is divine and that we're here for a mission. Uh, and that's, that's about it. So out of the 20, there's one or two songs. Um, and then there's usually um, basically one contemporary piece that talks about what's going on in China. But there's no... Uh there's no demand uh, for allegiance uh, behind locked doors. I mean, you allow people to leave the theater. <laughs> people uh, can leave the theater, yes, Without absolutely. signing up. Do they get literature? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So Unheard the, of. The, the link to Falun Gong is actually uh, very loose. We don't hand out any Falun Gong materials. We don't talk to people about Falun Gong. We are simply uh, sharing traditional Chinese culture. Are you telling me that after going to a performance... The following Wednesday, I will not have two Falun Gong members come to my door and <laughs> no, the house absolutely. and say, may we come in, we would like to talk to you absolutely about not. our faith. Absolutely not. No, that's actually not even part of the faith. Um, so absolutely not. No, it's just, it's just a show like any other, any other show. Yeah. Well, you having spent an hour with us uh, doing really a yeoman's job at explaining something that's relatively complex, particularly for Western ears. Uh, I offer you the opportunity right now, uh, not to politic, uh, but to let people know where they can find out more about Falun Gong and spell it for everybody. Yes, of course. So uh, as I mentioned, everything is free. So everything is available online. Nothing's hidden. Uh, so if you go to uh, Falun Dafa, and I'll spell it, dot org, which is F-A-L-U-N-D, AFA.org. Um, all the exercises are on there. Uh, all the, the nine-day lectures are on there, and they're all they're all given out for free. Uh, there's also local groups that teach the exercises for free, um, so you can find local groups. And then for people interested in Shenyun, the website is just s h e n y u n dot com. And so the the touring season is now. Uh, there's six troops that tour the world simultaneously. Um, and so, yeah, it's a great thing. No, oh, and what if folks uh, contact Falun Gong as opposed to Falun Dafa? Will they still be able to contact those origins of information that we're talking about? Absolutely, one, one and the same. It's just a difference in uh, terminology. This has really been a uh, uh, an eye-opening experience, an ear-opening experience for most of us. Uh, and having read about your uh, organization for many years now. Uh, the one thing that I would wish for all of you is the absence of persecution in your lives and peace everywhere on earth to the members of Falun Gong.